What's up, Vineyard? How y'all doing? Good. Glad to hear that. <laughs> okay, if you don't know me, my name is Luke, and I get the privilege of working with young adults here at the Vineyard Church. Um, and go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke 15 right now. If you have your Bible on you or your glow-in-the-dark Bible, you know, one of these things, go ahead and turn to, or scroll to Luke 15. We're going to be camping out in the Gospel of Luke this morning, looking at a really famous parable. I know all of you have heard of it, and also um, a, a famous story as well. And real quick, I just want to give everyone in the church an update on the cool things that God is doing with the young adults right now. Um, God's doing cool things all throughout the church, and I get uh, the honor to be a part of the ones happening with the young adults. But Last week, we actually got the privilege of baptizing 12 people. So that was really cool. In the past, yeah, okay, clap. <clears throat> In the past two weeks, we've seen two people get saved and come to the Lord for the first time. That was awesome. All right. And since the end of April, so for just about three months now, we've been, uh, there's been a handful of us, probably seven or eight, who've been praying for people just throughout our daily lives at the gas pump, in the stores, at Kroger, etc. And by the grace of God, we've seen over 700 people receive encounters from the Lord in those three months through prayer and prophecy, and it's just been really amazing. So praise the Lord for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you are a young adult in this auditorium and you haven't been to a house group or haven't gotten connected with young adult ministry, I would love to meet you at some point this morning and to help you kind of figure out what your next steps are to getting connected. Also, we have leaders from the house groups that are actually here in this room right now. And actually, you know what? If you're on a house team at house group, can you just stand up? Okay. So look around these people. Come talk to one of them if you have any questions about house group, if you know I'm with doing something or whatever, and they would be happy to answer them. All right. Thanks, you all. You can sit down. You guys like clapping, don't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, Luke 15, let's turn there. This is probably the most famous parable that the Lord spoke on when he was here on earth. This is the parable of the prodigal son. You all have heard it. And it's one of those, one of those stories you just got to go back to periodically. It's one of those that whenever I'm feeling um, just like in need of being reminded of what God's love is for me. It's one of those passages that I go back to. And man, it's a powerful one. So let's just start off by reading it. We're going to start in verse 10 and go through verse 24. So follow along with your Bible or your device, or they'll be up on the screen as well. Here we go, verse 10. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. 
He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead. And now his return to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. So there's this father. And this father has worked his entire life to save up this estate just to pass off to his two sons when he dies. And you see, Jesus doesn't mention that this man was royalty. So he didn't inherit this money. This is money that he worked every day for nine, 10 hours a day, storing it up all throughout his life just to give comfort and security to his two sons. And I bet you many people in this room can identify with that, that you care more about the security and the comfort of your own family than your own. And so you work hard to keep them safe and to keep them comfortable. And this man did it all just out of pure love for his two sons. He just loved them so much. So much so that he was willing to work his whole life, not see much of the rewards, just to pass off his money to them, to keep them safe. So that's what he did. Then comes the younger son. I have two younger siblings. And if this younger son was like my two younger siblings, sometimes they can have a rebellious side, right? And so this younger son is rebellious and he wants to take all the money right then and there. And he says to his father, dad, If you really say this money is mine, I want it all right now. Give it to me. And so the father agrees. And the son takes the money. The son gathers it up, gets all his belongings and says, I'm moving to Vegas. And so he goes out to, he didn't really go to Vegas. We all know that, right? (laughs) Okay. So he goes off and he's, he's drinking, he's partying, he's hanging out with all these people. And there's all these people surrounding him because of this great money he has. But because they're spending their time in this dazed state, in this intoxication, in this ecstasy, the entire time, their relationships never really go in depth. They stay kind of surface level. And so when the money runs out, the friends run out with it. And the son, he's left broken and by himself, all the friends that have been around him left him once his money was gone. And I bet some people in this room can identify with that. That when they hit rock bottom, it seems like everyone abandoned them. And they realize, wow, these people were only here because I had this money or because I had this house or because I had this status. And he's utterly alone without money, broke. And so he gets a job taking care of pigs. And what you might not know is that in the Jewish culture at the time, 
Pigs were the most unclean of animals. To take care of a pig would have been humiliating and degrading. And so he's put in this pig pasture taking care of these pigs. It might be something like us taking care of, like cleaning porta potties or working in the sewers. And this younger son is just humiliated and broke and starving and alone and hopeless. And he looks at where he is and realizes, wow, the slaves, the servants in my father's house have it better than me. And he realizes my father's never going to forgive me for this. I squandered his whole estate he worked his entire life for. He's never going to forgive me. He's always going to be disappointed in me. He's always going to be frustrated and mad with me. But maybe if I come back to him and beg to be his servant or be his slave, maybe then I can at least get out of this hopeless situation that I'm in. I'll never be worthy of being called his son again, though. And so he starts to head back to his father's house and he's taking step after step, rehearsing in his mind what he's going to say and how he's going to act in front of his father. And he looks up and he sees the home and the feeling of dread comes upon him because he's been dreading the moment he has to face his father and step after step, his head's down in shame. But then he hears a door open and slam and out comes running his dad, his father. And his father runs up to him and hugs him and kisses him and and is overjoyed. And the son doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't understand what's happening. He says, dad, I know I'm not worthy of being called your son because of what I did. I know you can never forgive me. Please, just let me come be your slave. But his dad pays no attention to that. His dad looks him in the eyes and says, son, you don't understand. I've been waiting for this moment every day since you left. I haven't stopped thinking about you. I've been sitting here checking every morning to see if you were there and how you're here. And then he says to his servants, bring out the finest robe and cover him. You see, the son still reeked of pig and pig feces and, and putting on this robe and putting this ring on his finger and sandals on his feet was a symbolic way of cleansing him there in the moment. And the father just lavishes his love upon the son and they throw a party for him. The dad's like, son, you were gone, but now you're back. You were lost, but now you're found. I want to just pull two points out of this parable. I'm sure we could pull 20 or 30 of them, but I just want to pull two. First is this. We are not loved by God because we are worthy of it. We are worthy before him because he loves us. You are not loved by God because you have proven your worth to him by doing good things. No, your worth has already been proven simply by the fact that he loves you. You see, this son, he hadn't done anything to deserve the ring on his finger or to, to deserve the robe around him or the sandals on his feet or to deserve the father's love. He didn't deserve any of that. However, he still received it simply because his dad loved him. And the same is true for us. No matter what our past, God loves us. God loves you. And your worth comes from that love. And you don't have to worry about proving your worth before him. 
It's already there. You just got to accept it. Second point is this. We don't have to make up for our sin in order to come before God. You see, the son, as he was walking back and thinking about what he would say to his father, he was ready to become his slave for life just to make up for what he had done, just to get back into his father's house. He's thinking, I'm not worthy of being called my father's son anymore. And so I'll just become his slave to kind of pay, pay him back for all that I did to him. But he didn't have to. The father just loved him. And the same is true for us. No matter what our past, no matter what we have done, we don't have to make up for all of that by doing good things. All we have to do is believe in Jesus. And Paul puts it this way. This is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. Not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For by grace you have been saved. What's grace? Grace is undeserved favor. And people often say to me, you know, I, I can accept that God loves me. I can accept that he's forgiven me. But I can't accept his grace because I, I haven't earned it. I'm not worthy of his grace. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? You don't deserve his grace because grace by definition is undeserved favor. And if you did deserve it, then it wouldn't be grace. See, the very <laughs> grace in and of itself is given to people who don't deserve it. You have to be undeserving to get it. You can't be deserving and get it, okay? <laughs> and uh, Paul puts it this way in Romans 4. I like this verse a lot. Now to one who works, to one who does good things, to one who deserves it. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness to one who without works trusts him. You see faith in Jesus is just believing that what he did really could cover us and really could restore us to a relationship with him. And so all we have to do now to receive that favor of the Lord is believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough to cover us. Oftentimes people say things like I can believe God loves me and forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And without knowing it, what those people are really saying is when Jesus was crucified for my sins, nail in each arm, bleeding, excruciating pain upon the cross, and when he was cursed by God so that I can live a guilt-free life, that that wasn't enough for my sin. Maybe it was enough for other people's sin, but it wasn't enough for mine. Well, I'm telling you, what Jesus did on the cross was more than enough for us. And all we have to do is accept that what he did really did save us. And we are restored to right relationship with the Father. And he's not an angry, wrathful God sitting back at the house waiting for us to get there so he can yell at us and make us feel shamed. He's running out after us, hugging us, embracing us when we come back to him. That's good news, isn't it? Amen. Cool. All right, go ahead and turn your Bibles now to Luke 10. <clears throat> This is another famous story of Jesus's, Luke 10. But before that, I want to tell you all about an experience I had two days ago. 
So two days ago, I am, this is on Friday morning, I'm having my time with the Lord and in the, in the word and in prayer. And I start asking him about this certain situation. I was asking him for insight and wisdom and guidance in this situation that me and a couple of my friends were going through. And I'm pleading with him to reveal something to me. And all of a sudden, the phone rings. And for those of you who don't know, I actually currently live with Van. That was ironic. Whoever's phone just went off. (laughs) I actually currently live with Van and Lori and Wilson Cochran. And so I'm in their spare bedroom. And their house phone rings. Yes, those do still exist. (laughs) Their house phone rings. And not one time have I ever answered the Cochran's house phone. And because they all have cell phones now, the only time their house phone goes off if, is if it's a telemarketer. We all love those, don't we? And if it's, or if it's their, their grandmother. And I'm like, I do not want to talk to their grandma. I don't have time for a telemarketer. So I'm just going to let that go. It's a voicemail like usual. But something in me was different. And the Lord whispered to me and said, go answer that phone. I'm like, what? Why? He's like, go do it. And so I go down, I run down the stairs and it goes a voicemail. I'm like, oh, well, God, sorry, too late, right? He's like, pick it up. So I pick it up and I catch the guy right before he hangs up. I'm like, oh, okay. And so I'm talking to him and he's a telemarketer. He's trying to sell me a certain kind of medication, medicine thing. And uh, how do I put this? This would be a medicine or medication only guys would use. Okay. That's, that's, Okay. So he's trying to sell me this medication and I'm like, yeah, no, man, I don't need that. Um, and then he's, uh, <laughs> then he's trying to sell me vitamins. I'm like, no, I don't need, don't need any vitamins. And, and I'm like, God, why am I on the phone right now? <laughs> why am I talking to this, this telemarketer? I was praying and reading the Bible before. Don't you want me to do that? And he whispers to me, the Lord whispers to me, ask him if he's been in a car accident. And so I'm like, Oh, okay. So I ask him, hey, random question. He's like, yes, anything. I'm like, thank you. Uh, Have you been in a car accident lately? And he's like, a car accident? Yeah, he's like, yeah, you know what, actually I have. And it hadn't been within like super recent history, but in the past couple of years, he had been in a car accident and got injuries from it. And so then I'm like, okay, this, that led to this. Well, do you have any injuries or did you sustain any injuries from that car accident that still are bothering you right now? And he's like, no, no, I'm not. But I'm not in any pain right now from any of that. But I'm cold. And I kind of misunderstood him at first. I'm like, oh, so you have like a cold right now. You're like sick. He's like, no, no, no. I'm like freezing cold. The, the air conditioning is cranked up in this office. And I'm like physically cold. <laughs> and so I don't really know why he told me that. But... <laughs> It was cool what happened. And so I've never, the next thing I said, I've never said before in praying for someone, especially not to a telemarketer. And, and I say to him, well, you know, I think God wants to warm you up. (laughs) Right. And he's like, God wants to do what? I'm like, yeah, I think he wants to warm you up. And so I'm like, can I pray for you? And he's, um, yeah, sure. So I'm like, so Lord, I thank you for Ken and in Jesus name, warm him up. <laughs> um, amen. And he's like, thank you so much. I'm like, you know, just out of curiosity, are you warmer right now? He's like, yeah, actually I am. You know, I'm not cold at all right now. I'm warmed up. 
And so I was like, <laughs> I'm like, praise the Lord. You know, that's God just showing his love for you. He just loves you so much that he doesn't want you to be cold in your office. And uh, he, wants, he wants deeper relationship with you. And then kind of like immediately his response was, oh, yeah, I know, I know that I'm Roman Catholic. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. I'm glad you're Roman Catholic. And so we started, we kept talking more. And he uh, <clears throat> eventually he, he says to me, you know what? I've been calling people all day for years now. Never one time has someone treated me like a human being. And I felt the conviction, you know, there's been times before where I've been irritated or angry with telemarkers. I'm sure some of you can identify, you know, one of those like slam the phone down things. Don't call again. <clears throat> kind of thing. Um, he's like, I've never been treated like a human being before. And that was just so meaningful what you just did. Thank you so much. I'm like, praise the Lord. And I hope you stay warm all day. He's like, yeah, me too. <clears throat> and so then we were done. So yeah, that's my story. Um, and the one observation I want to make from that, which kind of ties into what we've been talking about, is that the second I started telling him that God loves him, he replied with, yeah, I know that I'm Catholic. Or he could have said, yeah, I know that I'm religious. And what he was really saying, what I heard him saying through that was, yeah, I know the prayers. I can say the prayers. I go to church. I can go through the religious rituals. I can do all this thing, these stuff. I know God loves me because of that. And I think that oftentimes we understand the fact that we didn't deserve it when we were lost and then we became found, that we didn't deserve the grace then. But then when we, we become Christians, we feel like there's this gigantic debt that we got to start working off. So God's like, you know, if you don't read the whole Bible within the first year of being a Christian, then, you know, I'm displeased with you and you got to do that to make up for what I gave you. You got to say a prayer every day. You have to go to church every week or you know, you're not being a good Christian. And we have this, this debt we feel like we got to pay off as believers by performing for God. So with that said, let's go into the next passage. This is Luke 10, verses 38 through 42, story of Mary and Martha. You all have heard it before. Um, let's remind ourselves of this. So Luke 10, verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem... They came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister, Mary, sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, You are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. So this time, Jesus is stirring things up in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. You see, for 400 years, the voice of God has been silent, and people haven't heard from him. The last Jewish prophet, Malachi, his last book, his last prophecy was written 400 years before Jesus came. So the people there, there's this staleness, there's this stagnation in the Jewish faith and the people are desperate for just a real encounter with the Lord and just desperate for God to come and refresh them. And that's why when this crazy guy, John the Baptist, who has like hair all over his body, never shaved and eats bugs dipped in honey, and yells at people to repent and dunks them underwater. You know, that's why it says whole cities flocked 
to this guy because they were desperate. They were crying out for an encounter with the Lord. And Jesus was stirring things up when he arrived. I mean, Mary and Martha, they'd heard about how he healed the sick. And they'd heard about how he drove out demons. And they'd heard about how he didn't play favorites with men and women, how he would interact with women in the same way that he'd interact with men. And they'd heard about how he calmed storms, big thunderstorms, and then peace be still and boom, stillness. And they'd heard about how he fed 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and fish. And they'd heard all these things and Martha's like, we need to get him into, we need to get him into our house. We need to get to know him. And so she knew that Jesus and his disciples were coming their way. And she's like, if, he, if they just pass through our village, we can convince them to stay in our house and we can get to meet him. And Martha had this like, you know, A, B, C, D, E step plan to get Jesus into their house, I imagine. And she's like, if we just check these boxes, you know, we'll get him, we'll get him in. And I imagine Mary just saying, you know, I just want to meet him. I just want to meet him. I just want to be with him. I want to see him. And so sure enough, Jesus and his disciples, they come to this village and Martha's, her plan, her A through E plan works. And Jesus and the disciples, they decide to stay in Mary and Martha's house. And the second Jesus gets there, Martha, she's a mess. She's like stressed 105% and she's cleaning all the rooms and making the beds and preparing this perfect dinner. And she's dusting her dusters and just, (laughs) she's just like, just crazy stressed. Like we got to get it perfect for him. And I can imagine Jesus coming in the room and Mary and Martha having two very different interactions with him, initial interactions. I can see Martha running up to Jesus, giving him like a scripted greeting saying, Hey, hey, have a seat here. Let me get you a drink. I'm preparing dinner now. Let me know if I, I can make you comfortable. Kind of lifting off all the boxes that we do when we want to please a guest. But I can just see Mary just catching eye contact with him and just immediately being changed. And she's like, you know, I can't go anywhere right now. I just got to sit at his feet. And then she just at his feet, listening to him talk. And Martha is trying to prepare this perfect dinner. And she looks over and sees that Mary's just sitting there. And she yells, she says to Jesus, you know, hey, Jesus, send the woman back in the kitchen, you know, um, bring her back over here to help me. And Jesus is like, Martha, you don't get it. Mary, she's, she understands. She knows why I'm here. And it's not going to be taken away from her. And again, I just want to pull two points from this. Um, First one is this. Works, even good ones, can distract us from Jesus if we care more about getting the work done than we do about him. You see, Martha, she wasn't being, it says she was distracted and she wasn't being distracted by sin or temptation or this or that. She was being distracted by something good. She was preparing this dinner for Jesus. And I can identify with that very thing, you know, especially being in ministry, we feel this burden, this pressure. Oh, we got to make sure that there's a perfect service and then we'll please God. And so we care more about getting the service perfect than we do about God right then. Or, you know, it could be something like, you know, for me, give, you know, I got to just make this perfect sermon. That will please God. 
or even in our personal lives, you know, if I can just read through the whole Bible, then I'll please God. If I can just get all the way through, read every single word, not miss one, not fall asleep for any of the passages, even the end of Exodus. (laughs) If I can just get through it, then God will be pleased with me. Then I can start to push down that debt that I owe him. And the truth is, God just wants to connect with us in our hearts. He just wants a heart-to-heart connection. You know, if reading the whole Bible allows you to get that with him, that's great. Do it. But if we let these good works distract us from connecting with God on a heart level, then they might as well, you know, not be good works at all. Second point is this. Jesus just wants us to sit at his feet. I already mentioned this. He just wants to be with us. You see, Martha, she was carrying this heavy burden. She was carrying this heavy, heavy burden on her heart, this burden to perform, this burden that told her, if you can just make the perfect dinner for Jesus, then you will really show him that you love him. Then he will really be pleased with you. If you can just get it perfect, if you can just get this perfect dinner. And the Jews, for hundreds of years, had carried this same exact burden. You see, uh, in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, it's called the law or the Mosaic law. There were 613 rules that the Jews were ordered to follow. And they believe if we can just follow these 613 rules and regulations, then we can show God that we love him. Then he'll be pleased with us. I mean, 613, like, I bet you most of us have trouble with that, with those 10, you know, that we can think, that we can think of 613, the Jew, and they, they carried this heavy burden. That's why when Jesus came in Matthew 11 and was speaking to a bunch of, a bunch of Jews in the area, he could just tell that they were just burdened. He could just see the burden on their face. They were weary. They were tired from spending their whole lives trying just to do the right things and not do the wrong things. And he says to them, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, so really get this. He says to them, come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am generous and humble in heart, for you will find rest and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you right now are feeling this heavy burden on your soul to perform for God, it's not Jesus's. Some of you, a lot of you know what a yoke is. Maybe some of you don't and you're thinking like, okay, you know, what's an egg yoke have to do with, <laughs> with resting? <laughs> um, Yokes were attached to bulls who would plow fields. Um, It was an agricultural society. And when a farmer had a younger wild, like a bull that wasn't trained, and he wanted to train it to be um, useful for farming, he would attach the yoke. So this yoke would go on like the head and neck and mouth area. He would attach a yoke from a older mature bull to the young wild bull. So they'd be attached and the, the younger wild bull would kind of be like 
behind and to the right or behind to the left of the older bull. And then they would send the older, mature bull to go out and drag the plow and plow the field. And the whole time that was happening, the younger one was trying to like dart away and trying to like go up against the reins. But the older bull was stronger and more mature. And so the younger one had to kind of submit to the track of the older bull. And eventually the younger one would learn the ways and learn how to do the plowing. And then then the bull would be useful for farming. And so for us, we want to be yoked to Jesus, don't we? You know, we want to be, we want to be imitating him. We want to be doing what he does. We want to be thinking like he thinks. And every once in a while, we maybe bump up against, against the reins, but he kind of centers us back. And we want to love like he loves. And so what Jesus is saying here is that, hey, you know what? That yoke that you have to carry to be like, to be like me, to be in relationship with me, that yoke is not heavy. It's light. It's easy. You know what it looks like? Mary sitting at his feet. That's what the yoke of Jesus looks like. And I'm not, I'm not up here saying, you know, don't do things for God. You see, Mary, she was doing things. She was sitting. She was listening. It's not like Jesus came in and she said, okay, I'm just going to do nothing. She was doing things, but she was doing the right things. She was doing the important things. And the point, and the, and the point isn't don't make dinners for Jesus. The point is, if you do, keep him as your top priority. Keep connecting with him as the most important thing. Getting the work done comes second to just being with him. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back out. And I just, I bet there are people who walked into this room today who are carrying heavy burdens right now, who are just feeling this pressure to perform for God to do the right things, to check off the right boxes on the checklist. What God is saying to you is, come to me. My yoke is easy. I just want to give you rest. I just want to loosen that burden. So I want to encourage you during worship, if you just felt, if you felt that like heavy burden on your heart, just let it go. And sometimes it's good to actually like physically do something to help us, uh, a physical act can really release spiritual power. And so sometimes it's good just to like hold on to, you know, that burden that you've been, that, that you've been carrying and just kind of let it go like that. Just kind of let it go. So let's do that as a worship. I'll, I'm going to pray. Lord, we welcome your rest in this room in Jesus' name. Lord, we know we don't have to perform for you to prove our love for you, to please you. We know that you're infinitely pleased with us. So God, help us to, above all all else, sit at your feet. Let sitting at your feet be our top priority. And together we just declare and and we agree that we will be a people who sit at the feet of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Let's stand and come forward for worship. This is, this is not just for young adults. This is for anyone. It's fun up here. I tell you, I promise you it's fun. Okay. So let's do it.